Good morning. Thank you and welcome to the second presentation of our Workplace Resiliency Series. My name is Lynn Bruno. I'm with the Human Resources Department. How many of you attended a presentation last week? Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, that's great. I'm very happy to see that and I'm very happy to welcome you back. Um, the presentation today is Introducing Mindfulness, Reducing Stress at Work. And our presenter is Lindsay, who I will turn it over to in just a moment. She has 27 years of experience working with severely emotionally challenged people and their families. So she's well able to discuss and help us with tools to deal with mindfulness and reducing stress. Um, she is also a mindful living coach. She will be facilitating also the mindfulness workshops. Those will start on the 7th, which is next week. They are three hour workshops. Um, we will have a sign-up sheet out in the front on the table if you want to sign up for a 20-minute slot. The workshop will begin, and Lindsay, correct me if I'm wrong, begin with a 20-minute practice or a 20-minute activity for the group, and then anyone who wants to have an individual discussion with Lindsay after that can sign up. You can also um, email Human Resources if you're interested in doing that as well. Um, those workshops will be weekly through April 1st, or the first week of April. And again, they're 20 minutes, but there's a three-hour um, segment of time that has been blocked. And those will all be in 180-101. And the one next week is from 1.30 to 4.30. If you received a handout when you walked in and got your badge scanned, on the back of the handout is a survey. Um, we would really appreciate it if you would complete the survey at the end of the presentation. And again, leave it on that table out front. Um, that way we can get feedback on how you liked or didn't care for the presentation, but I'm sure that won't be the case, um, and what we can do to improve. Um, and don't forget to register for chair massages. We are doing those once a month now. The, the March registration will go up on March 5th. So that will be through LMS, and you can register again on March 5th. For those of you who got here a little early, I do apologize profusely for the um, a change in the time. Um, it was an unforeseen hiccup that we had, but I certainly appreciate that all of you are here now and know you're going to enjoy the presentation very much. With that, I'm gonna turn it over to Lindsay and let her take it away. Welcome, thank you so much for coming. I really do appreciate it. Um, this is for managers and for employees and it's really to teach us resilience. It's so important that we learn how to be flexible. As we know what happens to a dead tree, it gets hard, and when the wind comes, it cracks. But a tree that's growing and learning and is taking in nurturance, it becomes green, it breathes, and when the wind comes, it bends. And life is about being able to bend, right? It's being able to say, wow, you know what? I got issues, I got them at home, I got them at work, I got finance issues, I got health issues, I'm aging. Who here's aging? Okay, everyone is aging. Oh, this guy over here, so he's not aging. I need, you need to be next week's <laughs> talk. Um, but the bottom line is that we know that life has stumbling blocks. We know that there's pain in the world. As soon as you're born, you come out crying, right? So it's not that I can teach you how to avoid pain. That's not what mindfulness isn't about. Mindfulness is about avoiding suffering. Do you see how important that is? 
you're going to have a project and you're going to have a deadline. That might cause you stress or worry or anxiety. But how you process that deadline, how you see yourself in the complications of life, how you view yourself and how you're going to react, that is the difference between suffering, falling apart, cracking, falling down into that fetal position going, no, to, hey, I got this. I'm empowered. I am calm. I know that if I don't ex succeed exactly the way I, it happened and I want it to happen, what can happen next is I can grow and learn. I can become not only a better person, but a better employee and a better friend. That is our job. And hopefully, in this very short amount of time, I'm going to be able to give you the simplicity of mindfulness and how it can affect you. And then, as um, Lynn said, I'll be back next Thursday. And what we're going to do is we're going to do a 20-minute discussion group where we'll get together and we'll talk about a mindful meditation and some issues that we can work on in the um, workplace together. And then after that, then I'll meet with people individually. So it's not a three-hour workshop. I'm going to be here for three hours. And then you can meet with me individually and say, listen, this is my trigger. This is my stress point. I want to become more mindful. I want to become more empowered. I want to be more self-confident. How can I deal with this? And I'll help you think of some tools that's really good for just you, OK? Because this is an overview. So what is mindfulness? It's everywhere. And that you see, <clears throat> it is in the police department, it's in fire, the fire force, firefighters, it's in the military, it's in the school systems. And so just so you know, my background is that I am a special ed teacher. I worked with emotionally disturbed kids, bipolar, schizophrenic, autistic, suicidal gang between the ages of third grade and twelfth uh, grade. Then I became the principal of this special ed school. It was in um, Canoga Park. And then I became the headmaster of the school. So I've seen it and I've done it. And every single one of those kids that came to my school, because they got basically told to leave LA Unified or Malibu or Simi School District, and they got sent to me, every single one of them was stressed out, worried, anxious, and the parents were falling apart. And this was not a lockdown facility. If they couldn't make it and learn it and grow at my school, then they might have gone down to a lockdown facility. But what I realized we had to do is we had to help them calm down in the present moment, take a breath in the present moment, because if you don't feel safe and you don't feel secure, you can't think clearly and you can't learn. So my job was to help these kids realize that they could calm down in a school environment, which they already hated because they've already failed and been kicked out of every school, and get into a centered place where they could grow. And then I was to give them back. And then I got new kids in. So my school was always having deadlines and challenges and so forth. Do you guys know anything about that? Always having deadlines and challenges? I think that's what you do here. You don't come to work saying this is an easy job. You come to work knowing that you make a difference and that you personally are helping to change the world. But that means you have to think out of the box. And that means that you have the same kind of deadlines and challenges and so forth. And so if we want to be in that place, that centered place, we need to learn how to calm our mind. How do we do it? Mindfulness is being aware. Oh, I have a pointer. This is so advanced. 
<laughs> Just so proud of JPL. <laughs> mindfulness, whoops, mindfulness is being aware in the present moment without judgment. I want you guys to understand it. Being aware in the present means that you're aware of what's going on without judging it, without telling your own story. Mindfulness is being right here now. So a little mini, I'd like to say Reader's Digest version of the brain. And of course, this is just a mini version. Um, when we have a thought, the thought first comes into our lower brain, as we can see here. And our lower brain is our survival. This is where we have our fight, flight, freeze response. All animals have it. Lizards have it. I call it my reptilian brain because if you see a lizard, it starts, it stops like this, and then it starts seeing if it's safe, and it goes like this, and then it runs away. Okay? Our brain is wired to survive. All right? I also call this the caveman brain. Then we have the middle brain, and that's where all our emotions and our memories are stored. This is very important to understand that the things that you think about and the experience you have is stored in this part of the brain. So how you're going to react with fear, rage, social bonding, anxiety, is all things that are taught to you. So you might have been raised in a family where everyone screams and yells to get attention. It's the only way, hollering. It's not good or bad, it's just all you know. So your coping mechanism to get attention is like, hey, that's my piece of pizza. Because you had to fight with seven other brothers and sisters. And that is a normal way of reacting and getting your food in your home. However, you come to JPL and you go in the cafeteria, you see one more piece of pizza, and you get out of the way, that's my piece of pizza. That coping mechanism, that ability on how to express yourself doesn't work here in the workplace. It was a huge thing I had to work with with kids that were from gang neighborhoods. They grew up in protecting themselves in a certain way, and then you put them in the school system, and they behaved the same way in the school system, and it didn't work. They got kicked out. They weren't broken. They didn't know. They didn't know how to survive in the school system because they hadn't learned. So what have you learned? Most of your memories on how you deal with emotions, you learned before you were seven years old. So think back, how did your parents or your primary caregiver or your culture deal with sadness, anger, love, kindness? Because that is in the back of your mind, very deeply centered. And so when you're tired or worried or having anxiety, you go back to your old habitual ways of how to express yourself from when you were young. And that comes out. My beautiful mom, and she's wonderful, but when she gets stressed out, she cries. It's just, she's crying. Mom, why are you sad? I'm not sad, I'm overwhelmed. So of course, I learned the same thing. So when I got overwhelmed, I'd start bawling my eyes out. I'd be in the middle of school, and I'm breaking out, crying my eyes out because there's a test. What are you upset about? I just can't take this anymore. So I had to learn that the programming I learned, it wasn't that my mom tried to teach me bad programming, but it is what I did learn. 
is a coping mechanism at a young age. And I had to be able to be aware. Remember, we're talking about mindfulness. Be aware of how I'm feeling and then take a breath and then re realize, is that the reaction I want to do? Or can I choose something different? Ah, there's the power. Can you choose something different? And the answer is yes. Because we have the prefrontal cortex, and of course I'm simplifying it, we have all different parts of the brain that has our executive functioning going on, but our prefrontal cortex handles empathy, compassion, logic, problem solving. Let me tell you, everyone sitting here and watching this has an incredible prefrontal cortex. I know it works, or you wouldn't have gotten your job. All right? So you guys are problem solvers. You guys can plan. I'm hoping you have impulse control. <laughs> Kids have their prefrontal cortex really developed fast, in a fast pace between the ages of 12 until the end of the 20s, which is excellent because I have four kids, 27, 23, 22, and almost 20. And they all think they know everything. You know, and I love them very much, but I know they don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex. And their impulse control sometimes wanes on the slower side. And I think, well, that's okay. They're still learning. The good news is also that our prefrontal cortex can continue growing. Through MRIs and through the testing that we have learned because of the scans, we thought that the prefrontal cortex was fixed. But now we realize that the prefrontal cortex is not fixed. What you think about is where your energy goes in your brain, and that's the part that develops. So if you know someone who doesn't use their prefrontal cortex, and what they do is they have an impulse, or something happens, and it goes up into their emotional center and their memory, and then all of a sudden they get fear and anxiety. What that does is trigger the lower brain, the fight-flight response. Then they get all hype about it. Then they get attention about it. And then they're called drama queens. There's no impulse control going on here. There's a lot of attention, a lot of seeking, a lot of expressing. That's drama queens or whatever you want to call it, victim attitude. The reason why we have to get out of that habitual thinking of I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, is that we bring ourselves through mindfulness, being aware that we're getting stuck in that mode of this is too overwhelming. Because if you think it's too overwhelming, with the information, you go right down into your fight, flight, freeze response. Then you go back to your habitual old ways of patterns of handling stress that freaks you out again, that puts you down here, and you're in this cycle. What we want to learn is in mindfulness is realizing, oh my gosh, maybe I'm feeling upset or I'm feeling overwhelmed. I need to calm my brain down and bring myself out of this loop and up to the prefrontal cortex where I can do problem solving. You see how important that is? This is so important. So the next part of the brain I really want you to understand when you think about mindfulness is that we know that the brain is filled with neurons. And this is the way I like to think of it. Think of your brain as snow, just this beautiful thing of snow. And you want to get from here to over there and you're going to go through the snow. Well, the first day you go through the snow, it's very hard to get through. It's deep, and it's tiring. 
When you're learning something new, like the piano, when you sit there and you learn the very first day, and you're learning how to do the piano, what's happening is your neurons are firing together, wiring together, figuring out how to make this happen. And it's hard, and it takes a lot of energy, and you're not good at it. See, learning a new skill, even learning a new coping mechanism skill, but any kind of skill takes energy of the brain to get the neurons to fire together, wire together. Now, the next day, you go ahead and you go through the same pathway of the snow, and it's a little easier because you can step on the snow steps you had the day before. Same the next day, you're learning the piano. It's a little easier because the neurons are going, I know what you're doing. We did this yesterday. And if you did this for a month, sooner or later, you have a beautiful pathway. You could run right through that snow. And the brain, after a month of practicing the piano or a new coping mechanism that you want to do, will have a stronger pathway. And it's easier for the brain to know what to do. That's why you can play the piano. My husband can play the piano and talk to me at the same time. And I can go like this. But that's because his pathway of years of practicing the piano is already there. Now, this is true for things that you want to learn, and it's things that you've already learned. The brain is neutral. What you practice, you wire in your brain. So if you continue to practice coping mechanisms in which that stress you out or unhealthy behaviors like worry, if I practice worrying, and the next day I practice worrying again on that same problem, the next problem, how big is that worry pathway? Huge. The brain doesn't say, oh, no, worry and anxiety. No, 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 we're not going to practice that today. That's not good for you. Brain says, hey, hey, I know this pathway. The brain always wants to use the least amount of energy as possible. And if you are sick, if you are tired, if you are hungry, if you are stressed out, the brain starts shutting down the frontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex, because that uses the most energy and goes into the habits. That's why if you ever talk to someone late at night and you want to talk to them about something important, don't do it. Don't do it. I don't, do not discuss important issues with my husband when he gets home. He's a lawyer when he gets home from work. He's overwhelmed and he's tired. This part of his brain, I can't take it, Lindsay, don't talk about it. It's because this part of the brain is saying, I need to rest. And so he's going to go back to the easiest pathways that he has in handling and listening. So make sure that when you are thinking and when you're discussing something, Everyone has at least taken a little rest and give them some food. You got a big meeting come on? So have a little bit of food out there. Have some water. Have it comfortable. You want people to relax. You want the brain to be able to go to the prefrontal cortex and not get stuck in the old solutions that you had yesterday. So important at a position at JPL to make sure that you're accessing your higher level of thinking and not falling into yesterday's routine. Because we're not doing anything yesterday. We're going forward. So the first step in mindfulness and to be able to catch yourself in understanding how to change your life and empower your life to be more calm, powerful, and healthy is to be able to observe what you're thinking. This is huge. 
I shouldn't be a JPL teaching this. I actually should be in sixth grade. We should all learn in middle school that we can have a thought, we can identify the thought, and we don't have to act on the thought. No one told me that. No one told me that I could feel angry or frustrated, but I didn't have to act on it. I thought in middle school, if I was angry, then I would yell at you. Or if I was frustrated, I would cry. Now, through mindfulness and understanding how the brain works, when I get angry or I get frustrated, I realize, oh, that's my dog brain and my reaction lower brain, my lizard dog brain acting, and I do not need to react right away. I need to take a breath and get to the prefrontal cortex and decide if that's what I'm going to do. You have a choice to change your direction of your feelings. Now, I'm not saying you don't feel. You certainly should understand when you're angry. But that doesn't mean that you need to go and eat the Snickers bar, right? It doesn't mean that you need to just slam the door and say, whatever. I'll talk to you later. You don't need to do that. You become aware that I'm having this feeling, and then I get to choose what to do with it. That is the beginning of the power of changing your whole life at work, at home. So being aware, allow yourself to have the feeling. I really want to emphasize I am not telling you to shut down your emotions. I am saying that your emotions are indications that something's going on. They're inside flags going, yoo-hoo, pay attention, pay attention. This is bothering you. So allow, witness it. Can you sit with a bad emotion without reacting? That's true power. People who are in charge of huge organizations or in management or wherever they are, even in their household, can you be angry at your children? Can you be upset with your boss without acting on it? Can you allow yourself to have that feeling without that feeling driving you to do something that you don't, will regret? So then you realize you allow it to happen, you witness it, you accept that this is the way I feel, and then you take a breath, you relax. I'm not saying you throw the anger or the frustration or any of that away, but you say to yourself, by me getting totally overly emotional about this serves no good, especially for me. So you relax so you can pull yourself into your higher level of thinking. And then you evaluate and you emphasize the good and you emphasize what you want, not what you don't want. Mindfulness is about being aware of what you're thinking. And then you realize, is what you're thinking what you want? No, that's not what I want. I'm thinking about going bankrupt, or not. I'm thinking about not making my deadline, or I'm thinking about I'm not going to make it to work. Is that what you want to do? Remember, neurons that fire together wire together. If you keep practicing in your mind what you don't want, your mind keeps building what you don't want. So that's where you become aware in a mindful way, and you take that shift. You take that shift and you go, wait a second, all I'm doing is centering on all the things I don't want. If you cannot tell me what you do want, then you need to go outside and sit calmly and decide what you do want. Because how can your brain make something or invent something or give you solutions or ideas if you can't even tell me what the goal is? 
Stop telling yourself what you don't want and start putting yourself forward to what you do want. Okay, so I did the ABCs of mindfulness. Being aware, taking a breath, gives you a choice. You guys can remember that, ABC. I'm aware of what's going on, I'm gonna take a breath, knowing that that's gonna calm me down, and then I'm gonna make a choice. And you guys already know that taking a breath will calm you down, because if we were out at home and a two-year-old was coming and they're screaming and yelling and you would say, wait a second, let me calm down, take a breath. You would say to the two-year-old, take a breath, relax, then tell me what you're trying to say. Is it innate in us that taking a breath will shift you? There's many scientific reasons why taking a breath uh, changes the nervous system, gives you more oxygen, allows you to relax. You guys can Google it all day long. But the bottom line, it is so powerful and it's so much cheaper and better than drinking or taking Xanax, right? Take the breath and then realize you have the power of choice. That is your power. So I love this uh, picture of this horse tied to the chair where the horse doesn't run away. What they do in um, places like India, they take elephants when they're very young and they tie them to a tree and then they can't get away and they can't get away and then sooner or later what will happen as the elephant is, gets older, they can just tie him to a twig and he won't go away. He will think that he can't go away because the limitations were built in in his memory bank, remember the dog brain, your memory, that you can't do that. So I want you all to think about this in a mindful way without criticizing what chair are you tied to? I'm dyslexic. I went to a special ed school for four years. That's why I got into special ed. That's why I got into psychology and education as my, my passion. And my chair was that I'm dumb. I was tied to that chair for a very long time. I was always in the dumb reading group. I always failed the classes. I always thought that my parents were disappointed. There was a huge chair, and I had a lot of support. But I'll tell you one of the big reasons I got untied to the chair, and it's a kind of funny story, is that I was a senior in college, and I was dating a guy who was getting his master's in psychology, and he saw my report card, and it was like B's and C's. And he looked at me, he goes, I don't date dumb people. I said, I'm not dumb, I told you I'm dyslexic, it's hard. He goes, no, you're smart. Now, my parents have told me I was smart, but that didn't untie the chair. This guy, when he looked at me, and I really believed that he thought I was smart, I untied that chair. I have never gotten anything lower than an A through grad school or the rest of my years in um, college. It was my own belief system that a C was good enough was my chair. Because of my dyslexia and all the pain I had when I was young, that that's how I validated and I tied myself. So I ask yourself, when you have a limitation, be mindful of the limitation, look at it, and is it a chair? Is it really the truth? Or is it something that you just believe because of things that have happened in your own life, in your own household, in your own culture? Untie the chair, that's the power of choice. But you have to be aware that you're even tied to a chair to know to change, and that's where the mindfulness comes in. So 
when you learn a lot about mindfulness and there's, oh, there's Google, you can Google it all the time and books and wonderful people and speakers and YouTube videos, you'll enjoy it. One big thing that I love about mindfulness is it talks about discernment. And this is a huge power. Discernment is observing what is from a neutral space, from a neutral space. Mindfulness is when you drop the judgment, and that's what we're talking about here. Judgment is observing what is from your point of view, from a past story. I have lots of past stories, and it's okay. I don't know if anyone noticed, but I'm six feet tall. <laughs> so that's part of my story. I'm 52 years old. I'm divorced and married again, four kids, my past story special ed school pastoral, all that comes in. And I have to realize that's part of my filter system. It's not wrong, it's me. But I need to be aware that it's me when I'm talking to other people because other people don't have my past story. And I have to realize they have their own past story. And let me just tell you right now, if someone is really angry and yelling at you or coming and getting down on you, it says a lot more about them than it says about you. And that's what mindfulness is about, realizing we all have our own past story and we have, all have our own filter system. And it's not right or wrong. It's about being a human being. But it does mean that we can go to a neutral space and try to listen to other people from their point of view. Remember empathy and compassion, executive thinking? That's being able to observe someone else's point of view. Pity is a lower level of thinking. I feel sorry for you, you're having a bad time. Empathy and compassion is where you're able to see someone else's point of view without your judgment and to care about them. That's a higher level of thinking. Mindfulness is about opening and being neutral so you can see empathy and compassion and you can see someone else's point of view without it tainting your, your story tainting it. So judgment is clinging, discernment is open. Judgment is when you, when clinging, I mean, and a good way to think about it is the holidays. I want my holiday to be just this way, and we're going to have grandma's mashed potatoes, and I'm just going to have that. And then you ask your cousin to bring grandma's mashed potatoes, but they come over with potato salad. What? Potato salad, you've ruined Christmas. You've ruined the holiday season. It's because you were clinging to an idea, thinking that that's the only way. Being open, and if you come down to the next one, flexible, is like, well, I guess this year we're going to do potato salad. It's not going to ruin Christmas or Hanukkah or Thanksgiving or anything like that unless you allow it. It's all in your own mind. So discernment is being able to have expectations, but to be flexible and open. And that is so untrue when it comes to something like NASA or JPL, being open and flexible because the next guy might have the right answer to propel you to a greater place. And if you're shut down in your rigid thinking, you missed it. You missed it. Judgment is opinionated. Discernment is equanimity. And equanimity, which means, again, the equal. You've seen that yin-yang symbol? Everything, everything you could say to me has a good and a bad side to it. Don't fool yourself. Everything. I love my children, but they grow up and leave me. 
I mean, there's something. There's every yin. So equanimity is understanding that's the flow of life. Mindfulness is where you realize that the life flows and that not to be surprised when something doesn't work, you say, well, I'll learn from it. And when something does work, you think, well, that's great, but it doesn't mean the next day it's going to work. And you're not going to be surprised. You're going more in the middle. You're allowed to, oh, don't go to the extremes. The extremes send you into a loop and a spiral. If everything is all good, you'll be real disappointed when it becomes bad. And if everything is all bad, you can just stay there forever. So we want to pull ourselves into the middle and know that life is about equanimity. So I said before, to do that, just relax and breathe. And a lot of times you say, why is everyone saying just to breathe? Because you guys can breathe anywhere, in the cafeteria. If you're not breathing, you're dead, right? But in your car, right before a meeting. I used to go into intense meetings. They were called IEP meetings. And I was the person in charge once I ran the school. And people were very upset. But I'd have five of them in a row. And of course, when I'm in one of them, to them, that's their whole life. That's their child and their kid. So I had to be able to be present there and then leave, go into my office, and I just sit there and just take three deep breaths and clear myself out. So to make sure that I wasn't taking that meeting and that energy into the next meeting. That's mindfulness. I'm not saying the day is going to be easy, but you don't have to let one problem bleed into the next because you can't get yourself in a balanced, centered way. That's power. Power is when you can be able to say, that belongs here, I can take my breath, and then I can move to the next one. And we'll talk a lot more about this in our discussion groups that we're going to have throughout the next uh, couple weeks. So a real easy way to do mindfulness and to practice breathing is a five-minute meditation. And you can, you'll, if you go on the YouTube and you see all about meditations, they'll be like 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes a night, an hour here. And Listen, get five minutes in, just five minutes. Give yourself a chance to sit quietly and breathe for five minutes. Now, I want you guys to know I have wild stallions in my brain. I am not the Dalai Lama, you could see. I ran to school, I got married, I got divorced, I had kids. I mean, woo, I volunteer. I do all that. So I love doing stuff. I am more of an A-type person than a B-type person any day, any day. So what meditation has done for me, even five minutes, is I'm not trying to make my stallions lie down and go to sleep. That's not what I'm trying. I'm putting reins on them. I'm putting reins on the power of my mind. It is so cool when you can rein your energy. You keep it, but you get it in the direction you want to go. So how do you do that? Well, focus and attention is in your prefrontal cortex. And if you cannot have focus and attention on a project, if you get squirrel, 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 you get nothing done. You have to go and focus on one thing and be able to have your brain and believe that you can accomplish that. So when I meditate, I take a deep breath in, 
I relax myself and I just have breath as my anchor and I feel my breath come in and out. And I say to myself sometimes, breathe in, breathe out. Or I count, one, two, one, two. And then all of a sudden I remember I didn't get milk. And I think, okay. <laughs> I didn't get milk, that's right. Oh my God, we won't have any breakfast tomorrow. So then I say to myself, that's okay. You don't get upset about it. You say, that's fine. Back to my breath. See, what happens is your brain does not want to stay focused on the breath, especially if you have wild stallions. It's going to be popping in. You didn't get milk. Did you send that email off? You know, are you, how's the traffic today? I don't have an umbrella. All those things are gonna pop in your mind. And the thing is, you don't get mad that it pops and you say, oh, look at your brain trying to take over. <laughs> and you say, nope, I'll think about that later. You can label it as worry or anxiety or planning or whatever it is, or you can even label, sometimes I come up with the best ideas. Terrific idea, Lindsay. I'll go with that idea after my meditation and I pull myself back to the brain. You are learning how to control your own mind in that five minutes. I really personally, when I work with people, don't care if they say, but I, I didn't have that peace and bliss. I don't care if you didn't have the peace and bliss. I want to know, are you learning how to control your mind to stay focused on one thing without judging and telling yourself a story? That's where the power is. With time, your brain will settle down. It will not settle down usually in five minutes. If we, we were a marathon runner, right? Sometimes my, my father, who is 73 years old and an engineer, by the way, and taught robotics at Johns Hopkins. I just want to throw that out there. Um, and is also dyslexic. Um, he says the first mile, two miles are the hardest miles because you're, you're getting into the groove, right? You're warming up. Anytime you're stretching, you're warming up. So when you're only meditating for five minutes, you're just warming up. You're just training your brain. There's no failure, there's just practice. But if you learn how to start doing this and train your brain and bring yourself back to your breath, then when I walked in here and I saw this beautiful auditorium, you know, I go, wow, I had to, Get back focus, it's fine. It's just the same as me doing it at a law firm or anywhere else I teach, even though it's way prettier. <laughs> but I had to train my stallions, not like, oh, wow, this is incredible. Take a breath, have the self-confidence, have the calm, deliver while you're here, because I believe in what I do. And it doesn't matter where I teach it. Even if I teach in a sixth grade class, it's the same thing. Same with you. That's through meditation. That's through practicing. Five minutes, that's all I ask. You, some of you guys can do an hour or whatever. If you can do an hour, you can come to my class and teach me. <laughs> all right, I wanna tell you about a terrific study that's in a book, uh, The One Thing. It's the Israel Parole Study. They analyzed 1,112 parolees at a hearing. They had eight judges. The judges had two breaks, okay? And they wanted to know what was the chance for the parolees to be released. What happened was, is, as you can see here, see if I can, in the morning, right there, in the morning, if they went in front of the judges, they had a 60% chance of being released. In after, right before the, the morning break, it almost dropped to zero. Now remember, this is eight different judges over a long period of time, 10 months. 
After the break, we're back to 60. Here, about 20%, they had a chance. After break, we're about to 60. End of the day, forget it. You think, wow, that's huge. What does that tell you? It tells you what I told you earlier in this talk, is that when you get tired, your prefrontal cortex starts shutting down. And it's not that the judges wanted to say no. What they wanted to say is no decision. I, mean, I, I can't, I'm not going to make a decision. And if you're a proly, no decision means you stay. This is so important for us as being um, employees at JPL or even in your own home. That's why I do not talk to my husband about going to Hawaii when he gets home from work, right? Because home from work is here. No, we'll talk about that later. We don't have the money. I talk to him in the morning after he's had a cup of coffee where I can, he can hear me, right? And he can make a choice. So this is really important when you're thinking about yourself. You want to be mindful when you're talking to somebody else at work. Are they exhausted? Are they tired? Did they walk into your meeting and say, you know what? I slept horrible last night. It's, it's really tough. I'm getting a divorce. I'm starving. Any of those kinds of indications. Then I want you to think of this study. Go, this person is not really going to be there listening to what you have to say. So I, you have to decide what do you do next. Do you table the conversation or do you tell them, let's go get some, a glass of water or can I get you something to eat? Get them feeling more rested and more present. So because they need to have their prefrontal cortex open especially if you're asking for a raise, right? <laughs> I like to think of the rule of three, okay? This is what I do. When you're making a choice and you don't know what to do, I say, tell yourself you're only going to ask three people. Only three people. Because when you say that you have a problem and you want to get a solution, you're going to be mindful. If I am only going to ask three people, I'm going to ask three of the right people, not three of the wrong people. Have you ever met someone who goes and tells you their problem and then turns around and says, no, I really have a big problem. And then they turn around and then they, someone else walks around, I got a problem. And then they go and tell, I got a problem. And they're just telling everybody their problem. Someone who's running around telling everyone their problems is not looking for a solution. They're looking to dump how they feel. Somebody who has a, a problem that they want to solve and they think, I'm only going to tell three people, then they think it through. Who are the three people I trust, who is going to give me the best uh, feedback, and who's going to be honest? I also then like to say, allow yourself three days, three hours, three minutes. It might even be three seconds. Access the prefrontal cortex. I'm feeling like I have a problem. I'm going to give me the power of three. I'm going to take three breaths. Sometimes that's all you got is three breaths at work. You have to make a choice. But sometimes you might realize, I need to sit on this. And my dad, who I told you was an engineer, and he's actually building all this um, non-lethal weapons for the military as his, his um, retirement. <laughs> he's just doing it for fun and working with the Navy about ships. What he does is he just sits down. As soon as he gets out of bed, he has a problem. He says to himself before he goes to sleep, I'm going to think of a solution. Not that I have a problem, that I have this obstacle, and then I'm going to think of a solution. I've done this too. Then when he wakes up, 
He sits on the side of the bed and he just breathes in and he allows his brain to unfold and he comes up with the answers. He comes up with the answers. This is how he invents. And my mom, who is not anything like my father in that way, would say, honey, get out of bed. What are you doing? And he'd be like, just, I just need three minutes. I'm coming up with the answer. And my mom would say to me, you know, it took me a long time to realize that he was coming up with the answers. She thought it was just an excuse <laughs> to not want to get out of bed. So I want you to realize the power of three. Three people, three minutes, three days, but it's to give yourself that pause. Give yourself that pause. Another thing I like to do is that when you practice your meditation, Take four breaths and use your fingers, okay? So what we do is we take a breath and we touch your fingers like this and it says, take a breath. Then my next finger, I take a breath, let it go, relax my mind, I have control. Not that I have control of you, I have control of my own thinking. So I teach this a lot to college kids and people that are in grad school and stuff. So right before an exam or right before a meeting, they would sit there and they go, Lindsay, I do the four finger touch just to calm myself down. It's, and the reason why it's so powerful about not just taking four breaths is because it, the sensation of doing it triggers different parts of your brain. So you're activating more parts of your brain, reminding yourself that you're gonna take four breaths and calm yourself, now I have control, now I'm gonna make a choice. So I'm hoping everyone at JPL is gonna be running around going like this. Go, just wait a second. Four breaths, everyone. Okay, now solution time. Now we're there, now we're engaged. I also want you guys to realize that priming your mind is so important. Priming your mind is when you give indications outside of you to have yourself and your unconscious mind to go in that direction. So when you prime your mind, you can be mirroring or imitating someone. So you're seeing like a picture of, of um, well, I'll just say Nelson Mandela. If I have that in my house, it primes my mind to be peaceful and to be kind, to be tolerant, and to be compassionate. It gets me in that mindset. It activates your rectal activating system, which is your filter system between your conscious and your unconscious mind. And it's really interesting to understand that further. And we'll talk about that in our discussion groups. And it also, what it does is it gets you to activate your subconscious mind. So of course, advertisements all know about priming mind. Movies know about it. Reese's Pieces, you know, they were in E.T. That was to prime for we would go out and buy Reese's, you know. All these different movies, they Mercedes, BMWs. You see the fancy guy who's the winner and the hero driving a BMW, and then you go out and go, you know, I really like BMWs. That's priming your mind. It's your responsibility to prime your own mind. To have things at your desk, in your car, at your house that put you in the right frame of mind. You do not have pictures that piss you off sitting on your desk. It's not gonna put you in the right state of mind. You wanna have pictures, and I have this, uh, pictures of nature. If you have pictures of trees and nature, you go outside, actually it reduces stress, worry, and anxiety, and it puts you in a right state of mind. And I have a whole bunch of studies that I'd like to, if you come to the discussion group, we're gonna talk about how actually looking outside at a tree will re reduce worry and anxiety. Go ahead and put in Google 
reducing worry and anxiety or stress, reducing stress with nature. And there's just studies from um, Stanford and all different places showing that works. That's one reason why it's so beautiful that you guys are here. It is true. If someone is stressed out, then you say, let's go outside. Let's go outside and sit, sit in one of these beautiful you know, benches and have a conversation there. That will get their worry, their anxiety down, and then get them to access their prefrontal cortex so they can come to good conclusions and solve the problem because we're all problem solvers. So the last thing I want to talk about, and there's a ton of studies about gratitude. And you hear it, it's in all spirituality, be grateful, be grateful. Okay, but let me explain why. When you go to gratitude, you're releasing serotonin and dopamine in your brain. It's, dopamine is released when you do cocaine. No one be doing cocaine, not good. But if I said, let's be grateful, let's go and trigger ourselves into gratitude, then you're releasing these chemicals that make you feel good. So when you look at little things that you're grateful for, you're releasing chemicals that make you feel good. When you feel good, then you see things better. When you see things better, you feel better. Do you see how it goes? Can you be in fear and in gratitude at the same time? Eh, a little bit, maybe. But the truth is gratitude will pull you out of fear and get you in a balanced place. So when I am angry at my husband, and I think he's coming, he's a wonderful man, but I'm, he forgot the milk or whatever happened, and I'm upset, and he's coming home, and he's late again, and, and I just want to yell at him. What I do is I think of three things I'm grateful for. I'm grateful that he's very mindful. I'm grateful that he's actually very tall. And I'm grateful that he's super kind and lets me do all the wonderful things I want to do. And when I go to gratitude and I think about that before he walks in the door, my whole mindset goes into a higher level of thinking and I realize the milk just doesn't matter. So it is so powerful. It is so powerful. But this is also true if you were dealing with your boss and for some reason or your, your coworker whatever it is, before you talk to them and you're very upset and you're very emotional because that emotion is not going to get you anywhere, you need to be centered and you need to be really see what's clear. Go to gratitude. Think of three things that you do like about this person. Remember three things that they helped you on. Then you get yourself and pull and it's all about you pulling yourself into that calm, powerful spot to have a better, more productive conversation. So gratitude isn't a woo-woo thing. Gratitude changes the brain. It empowers you to be mindful. And you can use it all the time. So we have about nine minutes left, and I want to ask, does anyone have any questions? And if you do have a question, could you speak it in that microphone? Come on, someone has a question. Did any questions come on the? That's because I am so clear, right? You guys are totally getting this, right? You're realizing how mindfulness can actually change your life. Mindfulness is a, is a, a state of mind. Meditation is a tool to enhance mindfulness. I want you to understand that. You don't have to meditate to be mindful. And you could be a meditator and maybe not that mindful. But usually if you're meditating, you become pretty mindful because you're practicing the focus and the attention and the awareness and growing your prefrontal cortex, which is compassion and empathy. 
So, oh, good. Okay, raising toddlers and teaching them mindfulness. The most important thing I would say, there's lots of things, and you can go, I teach um, kids all the time, but you want them to be able to realize that when they're angry, that it's okay that they're angry, but they don't have to act out their anger. And if you can teach that, that mommy's upset right now, and you role model it, mommy's upset right now, we just broke the TV, so I'm gonna, you say to them, I'm gonna take you, they can see you're mad. Say, so I'm gonna take a breath. <sighs> and they witness you taking a breath, calming and say, now we're gonna make a different choice and a decision. And then you're teaching them that just because you have an emotion doesn't mean that they have to act on it. They have no impulse control. Wah! You know, so that's what you're teaching. If you can teach at a real young age, that's great. Uh, for my older kids, a lot of them, I love to get them lava lamps, something which, you know, I'm not doing, okay, then we're gonna watch this lava lamp, you know, or you get a timer. There's some balls that, these rubber balls that if you bounce them and they have lights inside of them and they light up for 10 minutes, uh, 10 seconds, you get them a ball and you say, before you talk, let's bounce the ball and look at it and breathe and breathe with the light in the ball for 10 seconds. And you're teaching them how to control their impulse control to bring up their prefrontal cortex. And just because something happened, it doesn't define them. That's mindfulness. Okay. I want this is about um, the gratitude. You guys have this, have that in there. I want to talk about cultivating flexible optimism. It's so important that I believe that mindfulness does that. It cultivates optimal flexibility, optimism. You know, op flexible optimism. Excuse me. You want to be optimistic. You know, you want to see the world as a good thing. But it goes back to what I talked in the beginning, is that you don't want to be rigid. Even in your optimism, you want to be flexible. And a lot of times we think that if we fail, something's gone wrong. But of course, people who do science, they understand a failure is just a stepping stone to learning that there's something else to do. Those who fail and stay down are those who never get up and change the world. Those who fail and try, and then they grow, and they go, well, I'll be flexible. I'll do it differently the next time. They're the ones who actually live a more peaceful life. We have all failed, but that doesn't make us failures. That makes us people who grow. So they had this study done in Missouri where they wrote down the best possible future self for 20 minutes. And then they showed that over time, that they became happier, they actually had fewer physical ailments, and they increased in their positive mood. It goes back to what I was saying before, so important. I bet I could ask you all the things you don't want, but what do you want? What do you want? What is the best possible future? If you can write out what the best possible future is, then you're seeing it in an optimistic way, and then you have to put the word flexibility because you know nothing's a straight line. We go like this. So when it doesn't work out, you're flexible, and you go up and, and you stand in your truth and say, well, I learned in that. So important in mindfulness doesn't mean that every day is happy. That's not what I'm talking about. Every day is not happy. But every day you can wake up and say, I have calmness and I have personal power to do the best. 
And doing your best maybe on a day that you have the flu is just getting out of bed and putting your dishes in the sink. But that's good. And then doing your best when you're sitting here at work and you're feeling good, you try your very best with the information you have and you do not become your worst critic. You become your best teacher. That's mindfulness. When you hear that critic coming in, you say, no, I'm not going into the critic mind. I'm going into the teacher mind. And that gives you optimistic flexibility. So I had, and I have this on my, on my um, bracelet right here, and it's a starfish. And I had this story framed in my office when I ran Park Hill School. And it goes that there was this man, and he was looking out at the beach. And he saw this little girl dancing and dancing, and he thought, that's so strange. What is that little girl doing? So he went out of his condo down to the beach, and he said to the little girl, what are you doing? And she said, as she picked up a starfish, throwing it in the water, I'm throwing the starfish in the water. And the man said, but last night was a storm. There's thousands of starfish out there, just thousands. You can't make a difference. And she picked up the next starfish, and she threw it in the water, and she said, but I made a difference for that one. That's mindfulness. Don't be overwhelmed about all the starfish in the world. Work on the starfish or the person or the project that's in front of you. Do your very best to throw your starfish and save the starfish out there. I want to thank you very much for coming, and I hope I'll see you next week. <laughs>